Amen. All right, tonight we're going to be beginning a Bible study going through the book of Jonah. Now, and as I usually do, I'm just going to give you a, cup, a couple of just basic, just basic overview, uh, little things about the book of Jonah. So obviously the title of the book is Jonah. There are four chapters. There are four chapters in the book of Jonah. Uh, some of the chapters are a little bit short. You'll notice there in verse number 1, there's 17, or I'm sorry, chapter number 1, there are 17 verses. That's the longest chapter. Chapter number 2, you have 10 verses. Chapter number 3, again, you have 10 verses. And chapter number 4, you have 11 verses. Now, an actual overview as far as what is the book of Jonah about. It is about Jonah. And specifically, it's about Jonah being sent to preach. Jonah is a prophet, and he's being sent to preach to the city of Nineveh. If I had to give you, you know, the about Jonah as far as what the book was about in a summary and a sense of a practical application, I would apply it unto a backslidden Christian. And that's going to be something that I will touch on uh, quite a bit. There are a lot of other things that we can learn, but that's going to be the overall theme. And even when I don't touch on it, make sure that you're paying attention uh, for that particular lesson throughout the book of Jonah. But we're going to go ahead and dive right in here in verse number one. And I'm going to try my best to be very thorough uh, throughout this book. I want to be a little bit more thorough. I want to you know, grow in my uh, uh, preaching and my job as a pastor. And when I go through the Bible studies, one thing that I want to make sure that I'm doing is that I'm giving you a more vast or you know more of a broad understanding of what we are studying and I want it to truly be a verse by verse Bible study. So I want to begin here in Jonah chapter number one verse number one the Bible says now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and cry against it for their wickedness is come up before me. So the book of Jonah begins by the Lord addressing Jonah. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. And then there in verse number two, we have the statement coming from God. So verse number one is just telling us that the Lord addressed Jonah. Now I want you to keep your hand here and I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter number 14. That is in the historical books. That's 2 Kings chapter number. 14. 2 Kings chapter number 14. <clears throat> you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. So 2 Kings chapter number 14. Let me get there myself. 2 Kings chapter number 14. I want you to look with me at verse number 25. This is the only other mention in the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah where we see Jonah himself, the person being mentioned. It says in verse number 25 of 2 Kings 14, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering in of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of gath Hefer. So notice there it mentions Jonah. Now we can see that it's the, the same man. Number one, it tells you that his father is Amittai. Notice that it's Jonah, the son of Amittai. We also, something that we can gather here about the person of Jonah, that he is referred to as the servant of the Lord. I want you to notice that because that's going to become very important or significant going through the book of Jonah. We also told where he's from. What is his hometown? It says Gath Hefer is where he's from, or Gath Hefer, if you'd like to pronounce it that way. Uh, so we see there the only other mention of Jonah outside of the book of Jonah. So go back with me to the book of Jonah. <clears throat> I accidentally dropped my place, told you not to, but I did the, that exact thing right after the book of Obadiah, the shortest book in uh, the Old Testament. So Jonah, Jonah chapter number 1. So we have, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now here is what the Lord said to Jonah. This is going to set the theme for and the purpose of the book of Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. So we can see here that Jonah is a prophet. He is a preacher and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. God speaks to Jonah. He's obviously a seer and God will give him visions. God's uh, spirit will come and will speak through him. He's not just like a, a preacher of today like myself or other pastors or maybe missionaries or deacons or 
even people that go door to door. He was a prophet where the word of God actually came to him in a vision and would speak to him and he would go out and he would proclaim the word of the Lord and he would be moved by the Holy Ghost. So here in verse number 2 we have the commandment that's given to him and it is to go preach. He's to go preach and to prophesy. I want you to notice what it tells him. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and then it says this, and cry against it. Now, what does it mean to cry in the Bible? Does it, does it mean, you know, to cry like how we, we would say that a baby cries? No, it doesn't. The word cry in the Bible actually means to yell or to lift up your voice. You know, uh, preachers in the, New, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, are commanded, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. So notice there that that is a command that's given to Isaiah who's a prophet and basically you get a summary of the job of a prophet and even so of a preacher. And what is it? It's to lift up your voice and it's to cry aloud but also it is to specifically lift up your voice against sin. When we look at Jonah's commandment here when we look at what uh, God bade him to do it's exactly just that. He's told to cry against it. Look at, I want you to look at chapter number three, uh, verse number two. We see the same command reiterated in uh, chapter number three, verse number two. It says, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So what is he going to do when he's going to cry aloud? When he's going to cry against it, he's going to preach. That is the definition of preaching. You know, teaching and preaching are not just perfectly, 100%, just equivalent in every single way. Teaching is to break something down and to explain something so that someone can understand it. So you're helping someone learn. What preaching is, is it's teaching while you're yelling. That's a very simplified explanation, but it is teaching while you are crying aloud, while you are raising your voice. You know, pastors are commanded to preach the Word. If there is a pastor, he needs to be preaching the Word. That's not just standing up behind the pulpit and just talking. That's not just standing up behind the, the pulpit and teaching the Word of God. No, that is to preach. That is what it means. And, and right here we can see that preach and cry aloud, or I'm sorry, cry against it, are used interchangeably. So when it says preach the word to a New Testament pastor or it, to at least an evangelist, if you believe Timothy was an evangelist, do you know what it's telling him? It's telling him to cry aloud. Cry the word aloud. Pastors are commanded to stand up and to preach the word of God, and that means to yell. If there is a pastor that's just standing up every week and he's just very melancholy and very reserved and very laid back and just speaking very quietly, he's being disobedient to that command. He is being disobedient to the command of preach the word. Pastors are supposed to preach the word of God. So if you get annoyed with me yelling up here, you know, it's God's fault because God's the one that commanded me to preach the word of God. I'm supposed to preach the word. Notice also that it's not a positive message. It says, and cry against it. Notice that it's against it. It's a message of negativity. You know, the majority of the Bible is negative. And the majority of what preaching is, is negative. Why did he say preach the word? And then he goes on to explain it. You know, he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Notice that two out of three are negative, right? In that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Right here when he's telling him to go preach, he says, cry against it. The passage that I quoted a moment ago from Isaiah chapter number 58, do you know what it says? Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Pastors, preachers in general, are supposed to be preaching the Word of God, and the majority of the Word of God is negative. The majority of the Word of God is going to be correcting you and rebuking you and reproving you, and the same goes for me. You know why? Because we're sinners. Because we, we have flaws. Because we are errant. We have you know, problems and, and, and issues in our life and we are constantly needing to be called out on these things. We constantly need to hear preaching against these things and we need to not have a hard heart. We need to open up our hearts and our minds when the pastor stands from the pulpit and if he's yelling about something, maybe that applies to you. Look at the Word of God and see, hey, is just the pastor saying this? Is he right about this? Is he wrong about this? 
Is this what God is saying? That's what matters. So pastors are supposed to be standing up and preaching the Word. You know what they're supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be preaching the Word of God that's crying aloud. And what is that? That's reproving, that's rebuking. What was Jonah told to go do? He was told to go to Nineveh and to cry against it. Notice it's negative. Notice he's supposed to be preaching. I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is also in uh, the Minor Prophets. Obviously, this doesn't need to be said again, but make sure you keep your hand there in the book of Jonah. I want to uh, uh, explain to you where Nineveh is because that's the city that he's going to be going to. Go to the book of Zephaniah, chapter number 2. Once you look with me at verse number 13, the city of Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a, was a large kingdom uh, considered to be an empire as well. Don't not to be confused with Syria, right? Damascus was the capital of Syria, but this is, excuse me, Assyria, which is a, a very large empire, much larger than Syria. This is Assyria. So Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. We can learn that here from Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north, and it says, And destroy Assyria. That's the, 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 the state or the country. Then it says, and will make Nineveh a desolation and, a, and dry like a wilderness. So notice there that he first says the country, it's Assyria. Then he says the capital of the country. And it is uh, specifically Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital, not just the city, but it is particularly the capital in Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Uh, one other place I want you to turn with me. Go to 2 Kings chapter number 19, verse number 36. 2 Kings chapter number 19, verse number 36. <clears throat> 2 Kings 19, 36. We learn this again here. <clears throat> it tells us, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. So Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. This is when they came, I believe, during the reign of uh, Hezekiah. And uh, we can see here that <coughs> when he left there from, you know, uh, he sent a messenger, uh, uh, you know, uh, Reb Sheki came there and was warning Hezekiah. And, you know, how all that went, they, you know, they ended up telling him to leave. God's, you know, basically, you know, worked on, the, on behalf of Israel. And what ended up happening was uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, went back to, to his nation. He went back to Assyria and he went back to the capital, of course, which was Nineveh. So where Jonah is being sent to is Assyria. That's where Jonah is being sent to. That's very important to understand is to have basic knowledge. What country is he going to? He's going to Assyria. He's going to Assyria. Now, you know, we're told a basic timeline, and I'm going to get into that later, of when Jonah lived. And, you know, that's interesting to know about basic, the basic time of when Jonah lived and who he was, he was concurrent with. But he's going to Assyria. He's going to the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh, and it's considered a great city. That means it's a very large city. It's a very powerful city. And... Uh, of course, it's not surprising. It's a very wicked city. It says, For their wickedness is come up before me. Verse number 3. <coughs> but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's a hard word to say. And of course it has to be in there three times. Tarshish, Tarshish, over and over again. But so he, he travels to Joppa and obviously he's, he's getting on a boat or he's getting on a ship. So J Joppa is on one side of a body of water. He pays the fare. You know, that's the price in order to get on, right? It's like a toll is basically what fare means. He pays the toll. That's why you call it a ferry. He pays the toll. I'm not talking about queers. He gets on it and then he rides it across and he gets off or he would be getting off at Tarshish. So this is in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh because why? Because he's being disobedient. So it starts off with Jonah being given a command in the very beginning and we can see that Jonah is in disobedience. So he's disobedient immediately to the word of God. What's interesting is in verse number 3 it says, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish, watch this, from the presence of the Lord. Now if you compare that to verse number 1, notice it said, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. So what came unto Jonah? The word of God did. The word of the Lord came. But what did Jonah flee from? 
He fled from the Lord. This is like John chapter number 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So notice when he's fleeing from the Lord, he's fleeing, fleeing from the Word of the Lord. So of course the Trinity being taught there. Uh, and then also, I want you to notice that when it's, it says that he, it says, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish, and again it repeats it, from the presence of the Lord. Now if you were interested in where Tarshish is, you know, I didn't get an exact location. It's probably, I'm sure it's possible, uh, uh, most likely to figure out where that is located, you know, from the Bible. That's why I like to use uh, from the Bible specifically. But Tarshish uh, was the great-grandson of Noah. He was the grandson of Japheth. So, you know, the three sons of Noah, one of them was Japheth, right? Well, uh, Tarshish was the great-grandson of Noah. That was his name. So he founded that area, of course, and it became known as Tarshish. So that's where he's fleeing to. Look with me at verse number 4 now. It says, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the, sh so that the ship was like to be broken. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. So notice that God gave Jonah a command. He gave a commandment to Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach the word of God. And of course he tried to flee from the word of God. He tried to flee from the commandment and from God himself. And obviously like David said, you know, we cannot we we you know, we can't get away from God. There's nowhere where we can, you know, get away from God, not in heaven, not in hell, nowhere at all, right? He you know, picks the the furthest the the two furthest distances that are juxtaposed to one another. There's nowhere that we can flee from the presence of the Lord. But it's, you know, it's, it's an irrational thing to try to do. And why would he do that? Of course, because Jonah is backslidden. We saw that Jonah is known as the servant of God. So Jonah was obedient to God in times. You know, he's, he's referred to it as in general. So it makes me think that just overall, Jonah lived a very godly life and was very obedient unto the Lord. And he was a preacher of God's word. There's a reason why God came unto him. You know, he was obviously preaching the word of God. We see other prophecies. We see he's mentioned uh, seven times in the New Testament. He's a pretty pivotal fig figure and prophet of the Old Testament. But nevertheless, what type of state do we see Jonah in? We see Jonah in a disobedient, backslidden state. What is he trying to get away from? You know what he's trying to get away from is the will of God. He's trying to get away from the Word of God and preaching the Word of God, which is the will of God. You know, you want to find out what is God's will for me, it's the Bible. You get into God's Word and you'll find out what the will of God is for you. You'll find out in every area of life what God's will is for you when you become familiar with the Bible. You know what else is God's will for you? Uh, just as another example to us New Testament Christians, is going to church. The Bible teaches that, that being in church is the will of God for you. So someone that's not in church, they're just like a Jonah. There's no difference. They're a backslidden, disobedient Christian. Jonah had God come to him and tell him to do this. It was the word of God. And Jonah said no, and he walked away. And he went in the opposite direction. Christians do that all the time. The Bible tells you and commands you to be in church. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That's a commandment to not forsake the assembly. The assembling of ourselves together. That's referring to the church. It's mentioned many times there at the end of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. That's what it's referring to. But nevertheless, you have Christians just fleeing away from the presence of the Word of God. Fleeing away from the presence of God. Not keeping the commandments of the Lord. Not only that, soul winning. Think about that. You have many Christians that forsake the word of God or the will of God for soul winning. That's another thing that we'll find in the word of God. You know, is that Christians are commanded to go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's the great commission. It's the most important commandment that you're given in the Bible as a New Testament Christian. But nevertheless... We have tons of Christians that don't go soul winning. We have tons of pastors even. Full churches, churches just full of disobedient, you know, disobedient Christians that are backslidden and not going soul winning. Jesus' last words was a commandment to go preach the gospel. You know what you have Christians doing? Just sitting on their butt, being lazy. You have churches just filled with Jonas. That's what you have. A bunch of Jonas just sitting in the pew. Jonah was told, hey, go preach. Go preach, you know, the word of God. And Jonah said, no. 
I went in the opposite direction. The Bible, the Word of God says, hey, go to church. You know what Christians say? No. You know what they always try to do is, is justify it. They always try to justify themselves and make sure that you never get to that point. At least if you're doing something wrong, don't justify what you're doing wrong. It's a sin not to go to church, okay? That's a sin. It is a sin to not be in church. You say, how regularly should I be going? Well, you know, the Bible's very clear that they met on the, the first day of the week. Like, that was obvious that they did that. So, at the very least, and it talks about them being together every day beyond that, but at the very least, the main meeting that they had was at the first day of the week. You need to be in church at least, in the very least, one time a week. I'm not going to stand up here and preach to you that I have a Bible verse that says three times a week or five times a week, but I can tell you that the Bible's very clear you need to at least be in church one time a week. If you are not, you're in the state of Jonah. You're, you are in disobedience. You are a backslidden Christian, a Jonah Christian. That's what you are. I want you to notice too here with Jonah, what type of state he's in. He's in disobedience, but look at what it, it causes Jonah to do. It says, but the Lord sent out, verse 4, out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. So we see here, first of all, what does it cause the Lord to do? So Christians, they, they, they want to disobey the Lord. They want to not fulfill the word of God. They want to disobey the word of God and get out of the will of God, and they think nothing's going to happen. They think that everything's just going to be okay. But you know what? Whether you know it or not, and you start to do that, you know what God does? Is He just sends a storm in your life. He sends problems in your life. He sends trouble in your life. Whatever it may be. I mean, go look at 1 Corinthians 11, and it lists off some things right there. Look, read the whole Bible, and there's, the Bible is filled with stories about Christians being disobedient and God punishing them. That's talked about more than almost anything in the Bible. Is the story of Christians sinning because we're all sinners and then God punishing them repeatedly. So just read the Bible and you can get an example or an idea of all the different punishments that God will bring upon you. But even still having the Bible, even Christians that read the Bible all the time, they just don't get it through their head and they just think they're going to get away with it. They just think they're going to be fine. They can get outside the will of God. They can do whatever they want. They can be disobedient to the word of God. But God is just going to not punish them. They're just going to get away with it. Things are just different for them. Now, as soon as you step outside of the Word of God and you begin to break His commandments, He's going to blow a big storm into your life. And He's going to cause all different types of problems. And the sea is going to rage. And it's going to be tempestuous. And it's not going to be fun. And even sin sometimes. People think they're going to have these wicked, horrible, evil sins just hidden over here in the corner. Nobody's going to find out about it. No, God's going to send a massive storm your way. And He's going to turn your life upside down and He's going to wreck your life like, like a hurricane is what He's going to do. He's going to send a massive storm and you're not going to get away with it. Notice immediately, God, you want to try to run from me? Okay. Send a storm. You know, you know how, however He worded that. You know, God will oftentimes you know, speak. He probably spoke and, it, and he sent a great wind and everything with the sea, into the sea. That's what's going to happen. If you get into sin, God will punish you. He'll follow you around with a storm and a cloud over your head continually. So we need to not think that we can get away with these things and learn from uh, the Lord. I want you to notice here, number one, that the Lord sent this storm. This is not just a natural storm that arose. God specifically, supernaturally sent this. And it's a massive storm. It says that the ship was like to be broken. It was almost like it was going to break. Verse 5, then the mariners, that's fishermen, were afraid and cried every man unto his God. Now when fishermen are afraid, it's a bad storm. They, they know the water. They know the sea. They know these things. So if a bunch of fishermen are so afraid to where they are crying to God, you know that it is a terrible storm. It's a very bad storm. It says, And cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. Now, not only because they realize and they're familiar with the, the waters and them crying out in that type of situation about how this is a terrible you know, uh, a storm, does that tell us that it's a bad storm? But also, notice what they're doing. They're taking the wares. You know, this is kind of like the word warehouse, right? It's the supplies. What do you put in a warehouse? It's W-A-R-E and then house, right? It's a compound word. And the ware is referring to supplies. So it's saying they're taking all of their supplies. A lot of times they're resources. And maybe even things that they're selling. Stuff that's boxed up. That that's the whole purpose why they're traveling back and forth. 
They're so scared and so desperate at this point that they're taking all of their supplies, the things that they would make money off of, and throwing it into the sea. Because they're so afraid because they don't want the water to get in and cause them to sink, so they're lightening the load so that it will stay afloat. It says, to lighten it of them. But Jonah, watch this, was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Another point that I want to make is, number one, we saw that he was disobedient. Then we saw you know, that God sent a storm his way. That is like a disaster. But then point number three I want you to keep in your mind is now we see that Jonah is asleep. And you know what type of people like to sleep? Depressed people sleep. If you've ever known anyone that's very depressed, they will sleep all of the time. They, because they want to escape reality. People that are depressed just sleep constantly. I've known a lot of people that are depressed and they, they're, they're just always sleeping. and They're just trying to constantly sleep. One of the ways you can see that Jonah is depressed as well is flip over to Jonah chapter number 4. Verse number 3, it says this, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I want you to notice that Jonah is, is praying to God to kill him. Does that sound like a happy person or a depressed person? Sounds pretty depressed, doesn't it? If he's saying, God, please kill me. Now, just to show you that he's not blowing smoke and he actually means this, look at verse 8. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. So not only is he saying it out loud, but he's wishing in himself. It's telling you the Holy Spirit saying this is how he feels. He's wishing that he would die. Wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Notice he's depressed and he's wanting to die. The only other time that you have somebody wishing in, in themselves to die, it's almost worded exactly the same way. It's with Elijah the prophet. And it says that he requested in himself to die. Saying he wished in himself to die. Do you know when he says that, what he's doing? That sounds like a depressed person, right? Do you know what he, when he says that, do you know what he's doing? Sleeping. He's asleep and then he wakes up <coughs> And then he eats, an angel makes him food, and you know, he was under the juniper tree, right? And you know what he does after he eats? He goes back to sleep. Doesn't that sound like depressed people? They only walk out of their room, you hear about, I'm really worried about my son, or whoever it may be, somebody who's really depressed. They only come out of their room to eat. That's what people do. You know, they just eat, and they go back to sleep. And you know what Elijah said? He requested in himself that he would die. Just like Jonah said, he wished in himself that he would die. Why is Jonah depressed? Because he's disobedient. You're not going to be a happy person or a happy Christian if you are disobedient to God. People think, hey, I'm just going to go after all the sins that give me enjoyment. I'm just going to, you know, live in the flesh while I can. You're not going to be happy. God knows what makes you happy and God knows what will make you happy and it's by keeping God's law. If you look at Christians that live disobedient lives, that are out of church, that aren't going soul winning, that aren't reading their Bibles, that just aren't living holy, godly, sanctified, set apart lives, they're miserable. They're not happy. They're miserable. Those types of people are not happy. The greatest joy and happiness that you find is the joy of the Lord. Amen. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It's, it's a totally different type of joy and happiness. There's a, there's a, there is a joy and a happiness that comes with the life of sin. It's a pleasure, right? There's pleasures in sin for a season. But it's a very shallow, empty, temporary happiness. There's pleasure in sin for a season. It's not going to last. You will ultimately be punished. It's temporary and it's very shallow. There's a happiness or a, merry, a merriment that comes from getting drunken. There is. But it's a very bad, dirty... Anyone that knows anything about that knows what I'm saying. It's a very wrong, dirty, bad merriment. It's not the same type of happiness when I feel the joy in my heart from reading the Word of God and finding a new nugget. They're two totally different things. One is a pure, you know, uh, uh, just deep, you know, fulfilling happiness and joy. The other is a shallow, empty, just rotten, wrong, guilty type of pleasure and happiness. So people think, though, I'm going to go after that and I'm going to find happiness. You'll end up miserable. Let me promise you that you will end up depressed and miserable. How did it work out for Jonah? We see a disobedient Christian and what's his, his state? What's his status? Depressed. One of the reasons why? God will send a storm your way. Not only that, the life of sin does not bring happiness. And it, sometimes you feel like you can't get it through people's minds. That like just sin does not make you happy. 
it will give you temporary pleasure just that temporary happiness but in the long run in a real true and 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 and, and just sincere way you're going to be depressed and and left at the end broken that's what we see happening with Jonah. That's why he's fast asleep is because he's depressed. Look at verse number 6. So the shipmaster, that's like the captain of the ship, came to him <clears throat> and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us <laughs> that we perish not. You know, so he comes down there and I'll, I'll wake up my children this way sometimes when, I, when I'm just kidding around with them. I'll like just move them over and then they'll look at me and I'll be like, What meanest thou, O sleeper? But what he's saying is like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you doing in this type of moment sleeping? It shows that he's depressed. He can just sleep through anything. Just like Elijah slept, ate, and went back to sleep. Most people would be wide awake, right, if they slept. But when you're depressed, you can just keep sleeping. So here we have the captain coming to him and saying, What meanest thou, sleeper? And then he says, Arise, call upon thy God. Call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. You know, it's like the statement that there are no atheists in the foxhole. It's talking about like the little mound that they dig and that they're, they're hiding in it. If you've ever seen this and they're rising up and they have their gun, their rifle and they're shooting and then they go back down. That's like basically the foxhole is what it's talking about. When people are scared and terrified and they're about to die and they're on their deathbed, there's a lot of stories of people like deathbed conversions or maybe just people on their deathbed just worried and scared about life. You know, I got, this is a perfect time to give people the gospel, by the way. I got a very close... Uh, uh, um, he's not necessarily a family member, but I would say a, a very close cousin's father saved while he thought that he was on his deathbed. He had some really serious, like very serious, I thought he was on his deathbed, health conditions and health problems that arose. And he was in his hospital bed and I came in there and gave him the gospel. And he's a very unexpected person and otherwise unreceptive person to the gospel. But you know what? He believed it. You know why? Because there are no atheists in a foxhole. You know, that's the, uh, a lot of people that live very sinful lives, you know, they're not interested in the Word of God because it represents righteousness. But when death comes and they realize, like, you know, I'm about to have to meet my Maker. I'm about to step out into eternity. They're a lot more interested. That's what we see here is these heathen pagan men all of a sudden showing an interest in God. It says in verse number 7, and they said every one to his fellow, <coughs> so all of them, you know, their fellow mariners or fishermen, they're all saying to each other, Come, and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now I want you to turn over to Mark chapter number 4. We're going to go to two places here quickly, because I want to tie these two verses, now that we've read them both together, to an idea here. Uh, the whole Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, prophetically speaking in the book of Hebrews, it's quoted from Psalms, says, Lo, I come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. It's saying that the whole Bible, the volume is, is what makes something up. Jesus is saying the whole Bible is about me. All of it. You know, the Bible says in Luke 24 when Jesus raises from the dead and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and then the other anonymous man, he makes a statement to them and he says to them, <clears throat> the Bible says that he, he began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you notice that? That it's all about him. He began in Moses and then it went to all the prophets. That's all of them. That's Jonah. And it says he expounded. That's like he explained too. I'd love to be taught by Jesus. It'd be amazing. But he expounded unto them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So in every single book of the Bible, it's about Jesus. Like he said, Lo, I come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. So we can learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's types and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in every book. And Jonah is a great type of Christ. We saw, you're in Mark chapter number 4, I'll read to you one more time, but we saw in Jonah chapter 1 verse number 6, it said, So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us. Well, we have a very similar situation at the end of Mark chapter number 4. It tells us, it says this in verse 37, And there arose a great storm of wind. So notice, very similar. And the waves beat into the, chi into the ship so that it was now Full. That's the exact same thing that was happening. That's why they were throwing the wares out, right? The, to, so that the, they could lighten the load. Then it says in verse 38, And he was in the hinder part of the ship, talking about Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? 
Notice how similar these situations are. There's a huge storm that arises, and the ship is becoming full. It's very dangerous. Jonah is asleep. Jesus is asleep. Both of them in the hinder part of the, of the uh, ship. And then in both situations, people come down and wake them up and in a very you know, frantic, urgent way. Not only that, it goes further than that. Who woke up Jonah? Mariners. Fishermen. Do you know who woke up Jesus? Fishermen. Peter, James, and John. Of course, his disciples were fishermen. So there's a super strong parallel here that we can see with Jonah and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in Jonah being asleep and, and down. And we'll see this a little bit more. Notice in verse number 7 back in Jonah 1, it says, And they said, Everyone to his fellow come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? I want you to turn over to Leviticus chapter number 16. Now, <clears throat> lots being cast is something that's, that was used in uh, um, you know, the Hebrew nation in Israel. And it's also something that is, you know, that comes up quite a few different times uh, in the Bible. And one of the most famous times that it comes up is, is when they did the sin offering every year. When they offered the offering or the sacrifice for the sins of the nation, they would cast lots. And I want you to look with me here at Leviticus chapter number 16. Look with me at verse number 8. It says, um, we'll back up a tiny bit. Look at verse number 5. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel, this is the high priest, Aaron, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. So notice here that they have two goats. One ends up being the Lord's, and that's the one that you offer. That's the one that bears the sins or is the sacrifice. And then the other, other one ends up being a scapegoat, one that you allow just to, to set free or to go free. The way that they determine this is they just cast lots. So obviously God's involved in this. This is something God you know, said to do. It's kind of like a form of, of dice or uh, they would cast an object and that's basically how it would work out, just that kind of concept. Uh, but God's guiding it. And notice that the, whichever one that it fell on, that's the one that would be the Lord. Now, all of this stuff is prophetic. Just like how I was mentioning in Sunday morning sermon when I was talking about the drink offering, we're talking about how those, those sacrifices represented Jesus' offering. And they were only prophetic. And the only reason why those were instituted is because they reflected the reality of what would take place many years later when Jesus was sacrificed. Well, uh, you know, Bible students are aware of what this t is and when this took place. This is when, you know, you had Jesus brought before Pilate. Pilate was basically the high priest. He was the judge, right? And you had Jesus brought there, but then you also had who? Barabbas. Barabbas, not the disciple. No, I'm just kidding. Barabbas and Jesus were there. And you know what ended up happening was the people ended up choosing who? Barabbas. They said, let him go free. So who ended up being the sin offering? It ended up being the Lord Jesus. That's why it says in verse number six, uh, 9, and it says, or I'm sorry, verse number 8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord. So notice that the Lord gets that one, or almost you could even say that that is the Lord, right? So that one in verse number 8, one lot for the Lord and the other lot <coughs> for the scapegoat. Notice when it says for there, that it says for the scapegoat. Like that is the goat itself. That is what would have been the sacrifice itself. But then it says, one lot for the Lord. What's that Lord referring to? The sacrifice itself. Not just who it's being sacrificed to, but the sacrifice itself. Just like when it says, for the scapegoat. Like, the, 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 the goat itself, obviously, in representation is what? The Lord. Isn't that interesting how that's worded? The Bible's, you know, obviously that's not a coincidence. So what does this casting lots point you to or have to do with? It points you to the Lord Jesus Christ when the, when the lots were cast and Barabbas was the scapegoat. He was set free and the Lord Jesus Christ became the sacrifice. Well, who is our type of Jesus here in the book of Jonah? Jonah himself. Notice they cast the lots and God's obviously involved here. It's not just Russian roulette and random. God has the lot fall upon Jonah. 
It is the Lord's. So who does Jonah represent? He represents Jesus, just like he represented Jesus in Mark chapter number 4. So then when the lot fell upon him, it says, Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? Saying, What's your job? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? Jonah answers, And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You know what made them afraid? And this is just in my mind right now because I'm reading a particular book. What made them afraid is the description of the God of Jonah. Of the God of the Bible. A lot of people think that all religions are kind of like the same. A lot of the people that are maybe atheist, agnostic, undecided, they think like all religions are the same and they have the same just basic principles and guidelines that make them up. But that's not true. They're not even, they're not even close to being the same. And right now I'm reading the book that's a very popular book, The Trail of Tears. And in that book it delves like deep into, you know, the culture of the Indians and the Native Americans. And they were like the epitome of a heathen and of a pagan. And when you look at what they believe about you know, God, like they don't even believe in a personal God. They believe in an impersonal force. And they believe in all, that God is in everything. And they're basically pantheists with like a mixture of like being a pantheist is meaning like everything's God. Within like a mixture of like this great spirit that is above them. That's an impersonal spirit. And they believe all types of just whacked out weird stuff on how the earth, you know, happened. There was a there was a, 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 a an earthquake that took place at one point in the book, and basically all the Native Americans believed that there was a massive snake, like a huge snake, and they tied it in with their religion and everything that moved, and it hardly ever moves, and it moved, and like that was what caused like the massive earthquake, and that had to do with their religion, you know. All of these other religions, they're nothing like the Bible. Don't allow people to deceive you and make you think like, oh, they're all viable options. They're not. When you really dive into and you look at, even look at some of the other religions, but you really get familiar with the Bible and specifically the Bible, when I talk about Christianity, the Word of God, that is the proof of the Bible. That is the proof of Christianity and that Christianity being the true religion. All these other religions, they're ridiculous and they're a joke and they don't even answer the questions that religion is supposed to answer. They don't even answer the question, why are we here? Where do we go? Who created the earth? Like, they don't even have good answers for things like that. When you look at all these other religions, the only ones that even have semi-good answers are the religions that piggyback off of the true religion, which is Christianity. And they basically just keep some of that stuff because that's how the devil is. He wants to be subtle. They keep the, some of the stuff about some of the good answers of, of the purpose of life, why we're here, all of these different things. But then they just corrupt uh, just more than enough just to send people to hell, obviously. Remove Jesus. Just Obviously, it's totally different religions. Not even close. But outside of that, every other religion is pagan. It's heathen. It's stupidity. That's what it is. That's truly what it is. And you look at, like, even, even Eastern mysticism type religions, they're all dumb and stupid. You have no real viable options when it comes to, you know, religion and things like that. Man is a fool without God. And when you get man like off on his own and things like that, and, and you know, I'm not trying to be cruel or anything, they end up like Native Americans. And I didn't even have a strong opinion about this until reading this book recently. But, you know, they were complete savages. They were cruel. They were disgusting. They were ignorant and foolish and dumb. And that's how you get when you just reject God and you're just all on your own. You just, you're just, you know, man's heart is wicked. Man is evil. The religion that man makes up is stupid and dumb and foolish. And the Bible is amazing. When you read the Bible, it's like, that's God's word. This really is the creator. Like, it's obvious when you read it. It is just amazing from beginning to end. Not only the cool little nuggets and how consistent the Bible is, but just the power of God's word when he speaks. It's just amazingly powerful. And when Jesus speaks, that's why the disciples said about Jesus, once they figured out that that was him in the road to Emmaus, 
They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spake with us? That's how the Bible is. When you hear the Bible, it's amazing. There was a time when I was working at Amazon. I was up on a lift with this other guy who always, they know I'm a pastor, they know I'm a Christian. So they're asking me questions all the time. And I was preaching through the book of Hebrews. And I was preaching through Hebrews, uh, you know, chapter number one, the... (coughs) The night before, so it was early Thursday morning, we were working really early, it was like 4 a.m., or 5 a.m., I guess is when we started, and, um, you know, he had asked me, like, he was asking me questions about the Bible and the proofs of it, and I had told him a couple of different times, but I was like, it's the power of God's Word. That is just the proof, it just cuts into your heart, and you know that that is not normal words. It's the Word of God. It's powerful. And I was like, here, just let me give you a random example. Hebrews chapter number 1, and I quoted to him the passage where it says, You know, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, you know, thou shalt be to me, uh, 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 thou shalt be, you know, uh, I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, he says, you know, and then he ends up uh, making the statement, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And this guy is very like, he's got, he's full of questions. You know, when I quoted that to him, he's, not, he, he's, he's very unsettled about whether, what he believes. When I quoted that to him, you know what he said to me? He said, that's super powerful. You know why? Because the Bible's powerful. That's not man's words. Right. Why wouldn't man have all these books like this then? Why is there just this one just compiled of 66 books and every single page, every single word, every single sentence is just amazingly powerful? It has prophecies of things that are, that are prophesied of specific prophecies in detail. It's just amazingly powerful. And you know what you had here was you had these heathen pagan men. They were calling upon their God, but then they heard Jonah talk about his God and it said that they feared exceedingly. They realized like, man, that's way different than my God. That's not like my God. And that's how it is today as well. That there's only one Lord of Lords, one King of Kings, one God of Gods, and it's the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there aren't all these options, there's really only one. It's very obvious when you study, you know, and you, and you just read the Word of God, that's all you need. Uh, so look at what it says there in, uh, in verse number 11. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So what did Jonah say had to happen in order for, him, in order for the sea to become calm? In order for, and obviously the Lord is the one that's bringing that, that sea. You know what that sea represents? It Oftentimes the deep represents hell. That sea represents God's wrath. What was it? It was God's wrath upon Jonah's disobedience. The sea represents God's wrath. And they're, and they're basically asking the question, you know, you know, what do I have to do to get the, the wrath of God to go away? The sea is just tempestuous upon them. And what do they have to do? They have to give up a sacrifice. You notice that lot fell upon who? Upon Jonah. Just like that lot fell upon who? On the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how selfish Jonah is as well, too. Because people that, in this type of situation, fleeing from the Word of God, not going and warning Nineveh so that they could be spared, many people get spared. And Jonah even says, like, I knew you were going to spare those people. But he didn't go anyways. And he refused to go. You know what it shows? He's selfish. Not only did he not go to Nineveh, but he laid in the bottom of the ship and was sleeping while a bunch of pagans and heathens were up in the top that he could preach the, the, the God of Israel to. And show them, but they had to come to him and say, what must I do to be saved? Let us not be that type of Christian. Let us look for opportunities to preach the gospel and to preach God's word and to show people the glory of the God of Israel. And notice that that's what's taking place here. They're asking, what must I do to be saved? How do we get this sea to go away? How do we get this wrath to go away? And what was the only answer? A sacrifice. A sacrifice. Blood is required. Somebody's got to die. There has to be a sacrifice, the one that the lot fell on. And Jonah's like, hey, you've got to throw me out. That's the only way. That's the only way that God would be satisfied and God's wrath would be appeased is by the sacrifice. Look at what it says next. <coughs> Verse 13. Nevertheless, so even in spite of that, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. So even though he told them, like, hey, you have to sacrifice. You have to have a sacrifice. You have to throw me into the sea. I have to, you know, die. He doesn't end up dying. 
in their mind they probably thought he was going to. I'm sure they thought he was going to. In order for you to live. It's a perfect picture of Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. The lot falling on him. You know, we can see this just in many ways. And then you see them, even after they heard the good news of how to be saved and how easy it is, just how hard would it be for those guys just to pick up Jonah? Fishermen, probably five, six, maybe ten, twenty men just to grab him and throw him in. Easy or hard? Super easy. How easy is it to get to heaven? Super easy. Even though they were told what they must do, and it's somebody else has to suffer, somebody else has to go through something hard, they even, even then, what did they do? It says they rode, nevertheless, they rode hard. Look at what it says. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. This happens all the time. You go to people's doors. Let me tell you how to get to heaven. It's easy. I have that as an opening line all the time. It's very easy. Jesus likens it unto taking a bite of a piece of bread. Jesus likens it unto drinking water. Actually, just on, on Sunday night, when we were leaving here, my helper, it's a, I have a different helper this time that's staying with me this week. Uh, we got on the subject of <coughs> the Bible and stuff, because everybody wants to talk about that with me. And I preached the gospel to him. And, you know, he didn't make a decision. But one of the things he said at the end was, it just sounds too easy. You know what? It is easy. Amen. It is easy. And I quoted to him the verse and, uh, where Jesus actually talks about how his yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me and learn of me. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest unto your souls. It is easy to be saved. Right. Just as easy it was for these guys, God provided the sacrifice right there for them. Hey, you want the sea to go away? The wrath to go away? Just throw the sacrifice in. It's easy. It's simple. It's not hard. But even still, you know what people do? They just, they don't, you know, accept the good news. They don't obey the good news, <coughs> just believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're like, I think I'm good enough. I think I'm good. You hear people say all the time, I'm good. I'm good enough. Well, these guys were fishermen. They knew water. They knew the sea. Don't you think that they were good at, at you know, paddling and getting to land when they needed to? Don't you think they were pretty good at that? Of course they were. But were they good enough? No. You know what that's a picture of? There's none good, no, not one. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There has to be a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There has to be a sacrifice. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the only way was what? Sacrifice. He told them already, but they tried anyways. But thankfully, look at verse number 14. It says, <coughs> Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee. Notice the humility and they're asking, they're begging. O Lord, we beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life and let not and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. What they ultimately end up having to do, they realize like, hey, I'm not good enough. You know what they did? They called upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice how easy it was. Oh, it seems so easy. Yeah, it was pretty easy. They tried to go the hard way. They tried to go the difficult way. And it, <coughs> they weren't good enough. And he said, you know, they said, We beseech thee, O Lord. They begged him. And God showed them mercy. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's, it's by his mercy and by his grace we are saved. We don't deserve it. What's interesting is the tie in here that it says, Lay not upon us innocent blood. Who are they talking about? Jonah. Was Jonah innocent? Or, or had Jonah disobeyed and he was the reason why all that had happened? He was, right? Isn't that interesting they say, Lay not upon us innocent blood. Do you know who is innocent? He whom Jonah pictures. Maybe the spotless lamb. Maybe that's why. They made that statement. Why God included that. Maybe the Lord spoke through them, but I'm sure that's why God included that. Because it pictures Jonah. You know who was innocent? Jesus was innocent. And Jesus was offered being innocent and took your punishment. See this great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just reading this story. This is the, you know the proof of the Bible like I was talking about a minute ago? The Bible. You know the proof of Christianity? The authority of Christianity? From where? Christianity sprung the Word of God. This is the proof of it. Just how amazing and powerful. You think you could do this with another religion's book? Get out of here. 
Not a stinking chance. Not a chance could you do things like this. It's not just like, you know, that, that, that men are crafty with it. It's there all along. You couldn't say, oh, you're just being crafty with, with it. Then why did Jesus say, lo, I come and in the volume of the book it is written of me. It was already there, buddy. Jesus already told you. I'm not just like smart and figuring these things out. No, they're, they're put in there by God because this is God's book. Amen. That's the reason why in Luke chapter number 24 it says, and beginning at Moses and in all the scriptures, he expounded unto them the things concerning himself. Jesus knew this was here. God put, because he put this here and God put this here. Look at what it says next in uh, verse number 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And it says, and the sea ceased from her raging. That's a picture of, of salvation being, being saved past tense. You know what it says? Ceased from her raging. You know, as far as you going to hell, it's not possible if you're saved. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the sea ceased from its raging upon you. The, you know, the wrath is past. You're passed from death unto life. That's what happens. It's a picture of salvation taking place, having assurance of salvation. It's eternal life because it's gone. It's passed. It's, it's done for. The storm's over. Look at what it says next. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. That's the proper response of a Christian. We see, we see these people after they called upon the name of Jehovah, the true God, the Lord of lords, and turned from, their, from their, their false gods. They call upon the name of the Lord. Notice that they start serving God immediately. You know, would to God that all Christians would do such. It says, and made vows. Now I want you to turn back over to Mark 4. Remember we were there in Mark 4. We saw that picture. I want to go back to that same story. There at the end of Mark 4. It's like verse 37, 38, 39, right around there. Um, <coughs> verse 39 says, And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. Watch this. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Notice the same exact thing happened. Who did it in the Old Testament? The Lord. The Lord Jehovah. Right? Who did it here? Jesus. It says in verse 40, And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Now watch verse 41. And they, watch these words, feared exceedingly. What did it say that the mariners did in Jonah? It says in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Notice they were fearful of the power of Jehovah. The fact that he was able to <coughs> calm the storm and cease the wind and the sea from its raging. Why? Because that proved that he was the God of the universe. Why were they so impressed by this? Because it showed like this is the creator. The winds and the sea are subject unto him. That's only the creator could, could do such. Well, look at Mark 4, 41 further. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, watch this, what manner of man is this? Who are they talking about? Talking about Jesus. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Talking about who? They're like, hey, he's just a normal man standing here with me. Who did they fear in Jonah? The Lord. Do you know who they feared in Mark chapter 4? The Lord. The same thing that those mariners and fishermen recognized on that boat on its way to Tarshish? is the same thing that these fishermen and these mariners are understood here. They understood the power of Jehovah. They understood the power of the Lord, and they feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared Jesus. They said, what manner of man is this? I'm saying, men just can't do this. You know who could only do that? This is the point. God. Go back to uh, Jonah chapter number 4, and let's conclude. Jonah chapter number 4. I dropped my spot here. Sorry. Whoops. I'm going way too far. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Jonah chapter number 1. I'm saying chapter 4 because that's Mark 4. Jonah chapter number 1, and let's end there in verse number 17. Uh, and then we are going to go back to Matthew one time, uh, which is just a few pages over. But Jonah chapter number 4, verse number 17, the very last verse. And you'll notice a paragraph marker there because there is a shift change. It's beginning the context of chapter number 2. Um, but we're going to delve in, more into that subject of, no, of uh, Jonah being swallowed by the whale. I almost said Noah. Did I say Noah at all during this sermon? 
I don't, I, didn't, I don't think I did. Okay, but you do that sometimes you're preaching and you're not paying attention so I'm thinking about other stuff. But uh, Jonah uh, being swallowed by the whale is what really people know about Jonah. Uh, next week we're going to delve into that. So we'll be going through verse number 17 of chapter 1 uh, through verse number 10 of chapter 2 next week. But I do want to read this because uh, we're going verse by verse real quick. So it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, go to Matthew chapter number 12, verse number 40. Matthew chapter number 12, <coughs> verse number 40, just to further show that I didn't just make this up, that this is a picture of Jesus in everything that we saw, that that actually was put in there by the Lord. And this is Holy Scripture and it's divine. That's why... All of those things are in there and they're so clear. They're crystal clear. Verse 40 says this, For as Jonas, that's Jonah, that's the New Testament rendering of the Old Testament name Jonah. Same person, just spelled differently. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So notice that reference there, the Lord Jesus Christ talking about when he's going to be dead uh, and buried for three days and three nights and his, and his soul will be in the heart of the earth, right? He says, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Now if you go back to Jonah chapter number 1, it says, prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then it ends with, in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. The fish was a whale. Now, the Old Testament <coughs> calls it a fish. What type of fish was it? A whale. Now, maybe I'll touch on like the classification because people are like, whales aren't fishes. We'll talk about that uh, next week. But we see here that Jonah was clearly a picture of Jesus. And he was meant to be a picture of Jesus. And the Bible is amazing. Uh, next week, we're going to be studying what everybody knows about Jonah. And that is Jonah being swallowed by the whale. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word and how powerful, how amazing it is. We ask you that you'd bless us, dear Lord God. Bless everyone that is here and those that weren't able to be here. Look out for Mrs. Hall that she might feel better, dear God. We love you so much. Um, uh, bless all the children that are here. Bless our church. Help us to grow and reach people. Help us to have zeal, dear Lord God, and not to be lazy Christians, not to be backslidden and disobedient Christians, but to strive to obey your word in all areas of our life and to study your word and to be diligent. And just please be with us and help us to, uh, our soul winning times this week, help us to get many people saved and to care about people and to show them how easy salvation is. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen.